You are listening to the Reality Church Ventura podcast, a collection of sermons from our weekly Sunday gatherings. To learn more about reality, visit us online at realityventura.com. My name is Danny, and I have the privilege of serving in kids' ministry. And today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Luke 15, 1 through 2, and 11 through 32 from the NIV. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, after all these years, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never give me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is God's word. Thanks, Danny. Good morning, church. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for this beautiful story. Thank you for the the clear lessons that we find in it about these sons and this father. We ask that today you would help us to see where we find ourselves in the story and that you would help us to see you more clearly through it. I surrender my words to you and my plan and my thoughts. ask that you would work through me and we together as a church just choose to open up our hearts and our ears to hear what your spirit would say to us today. I ask that you would do it in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I wanna give credit where credit is due. I have learned so much from Tim Keller on this topic, 
And if you have not read his book, Prodigal God, then you should do so. So we are continuing uh, our study through the stories of Jesus. We're looking at the parables of Jesus. And parables do a couple of things. Uh, First of all, they act like a window for us to see into the kingdom of God. And in today's parable, to see into the heart and nature of God as well. But they also act like a mirror reflecting back to us what we are like. So we should see ourselves in the parables where we can. And they also, lastly, act like a door welcoming us into all that God has for us. Today's story is often referred to as the prodigal son. But it's actually not a story about a lost son. It's a story about two lost sons. And it's a story about a father and his radical, unconventional, unfathomable, unending love. So this father had two sons. And there's really two acts to this story. Act one begins with the younger son coming to the father and asking for his inheritance early. In ancient Middle Eastern culture, the inheritance of the father, as you can imagine, would have only ever been passed down to the son or uh, a son after the father had passed away. I think a couple years ago during Obama era, there was like this new tax loophole where you can uh, pass on your inheritance to your children and not get taxed or something. That would have never happened in ancient Middle East. You only received an inheritance once the father had passed. And the way that the estate would have been divided up is the older brother would have gotten a double portion. And then whatever brothers were left would have gotten the rest. And so in a family like this, where there was just two brothers, the older brother would have gotten two thirds of the estate and the younger brother would have gotten one third of the estate. And in ancient times, you wouldn't have had just a bunch of gold in a bank or something. That's not what this inheritance was. It would have been land. And we have to understand how big of a deal land was. Land was something that was acquired by family members and then passed on to the next generation. And then if they could, they would acquire more land. And so as the land expanded, your identity expanded, your prominence in the community, your prominence in society. It was part of who you were. It was like, oh, that's, that's, that's that land that belongs to that family. It was like their piece of the earth. It was a big deal. We don't understand land like this, right? Like we buy something and then we sell something, we pass it on. The house that we live in, it's this little tiny house in this, on this little tiny piece of dirt in central Camarillo in this 1965 track. And that, that little piece of dirt's been passed on like five times in the last 50 years. We bought it from some lady named Kathy, right? Like there is no real connection to it. But in the ancient Middle East, your land was part of your identity. It was part of your heritage. You, just, you didn't just sell it to move somewhere else. Your wealth was connected to it. Your societal stature was connected to it. It was part of who you were. So when the younger son comes and asks his father to, give, or to, to divide up the land and give him his portion, what he's asking the father do is, to do is to divide up himself. And this would have been absolutely absurd. You would have never asked for this kind of thing. And for someone to ask would have communicated unparalleled disrespect and dishonor to the father. 
Because what the son is really saying here is, you're only as good to me as your stuff. I don't want you, I just want what you can give me. And the sooner that you can get out of the way, the sooner that I can get what's mine. What the son is really saying to the father is, I wish you would just die already so that I could get on with my life. The son is asking the father to destroy his standing in the community, to empty himself of his identity, to tear himself apart so that the son can get what he really wants. It's one of the worst things that a human can experience. It's rejected love. The father loves the son, but the son doesn't wanna receive the father's love. He just wants whatever the father can give to him. Now, we have to understand that the people listening here are, yes, an eclectic group of people, right? They're tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees, but as different as they may have been, every single one of them would have had the exact same expectation as to how this father would respond to this kind of dishonor and disrespect. They knew that any respectable father in this position would have driven out their son with a verbal, if not physical, assault. The son would have immediately been disowned and any connection to the father, the family, and the estate would have been revoked permanently. But that's not how the father responds, is it? What does the father do? He does exactly what the son asks him to do. He divides up his estate and gives the younger son his share. And then the son goes off and he, he blows it all. He, he wastes it on licentious, excessive, destructive living. And then the economy crashes while he's out there, so to speak, and a, a big famine hits the land. And so he has to get a job, but it must've been really bad because he doesn't just get any job. He gets a job feeding pigs, which a young Hebrew young man would have never done willingly. And verse 15 is a good description of where he's at at this point in his life. It says that he longed to eat the pods that he was feeding to the pigs, but no one gave him anything. Finally, he comes to his senses and he realizes the depravity of his state and he realizes, wow, my father's hired men have way more than enough to eat, and here I am. And so he devises a plan. He says, okay, I'm gonna go home. In verse 18, he says, here's my plan. I'm gonna say, Father, I have sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So in the father's house, there would have been slaves, and there would have been hired men. The slaves would have worked on the property and lived on the property. But the hired men would have been apprenticed in a specific trade and they would have earned a wage from the father and then they would have lived in town on their own property. The son has in mind that he will ask the father if he can be apprenticed and become like one of these hired men. Why? Well, most commentators believe that what the son was doing here was simple. Rabbis taught in that time that if you broke the family law, if you broke the family code, that you didn't uh, in order to come back, you didn't just need to apologize. You needed to make restitution. So the son is devising a plan to pay back his father. He knows that he will, he'll never be allowed to be a son again. But maybe if he can work for his father, he can at least pay back some of what he's taken. And act two begins with the son then determining, okay, I'm done with this. I'm gonna go back home to make my proposal to my father. 
But before he even gets near the house, verse 20 says that his father saw him from afar off and ran to him. This is crazy. Patriarchs in ancient Middle East did not run. One commentator who has knowledge of ancient Middle Eastern culture notes that the way that this father acted was much more like a mother than like a father. Mothers would have ran, a father would have never. For a man to run, he would have had to lift up his robe and expose himself, which a patriarch would have never done. To run would have implied a desperation, a spontaneity, a kind of impulse, a certain kind of humility and disregard for the way that you looked and your, your stature in the community, a disregard for your own reputation. And yet, that's exactly what Jesus says the father does. And when he gets to his son, he abandons all emotion and he wraps his arms around him and he kisses him. I would imagine the son is caught off guard. Nevertheless, he's got a plan, right? He's been preparing his speech probably along the road as he walked back toward the house. And so he's gonna make his pitch and he starts to, but he barely gets one sentence out before the father interrupts him. And he says to his servants, bring him the robe. No, he doesn't say bring him the robe. He says, bring him the best robe. The best robe. The best robe would have been the father's robe. He's saying, come on, clothe my son's filthy nakedness with my royal garments, with a robe of my office. Cover his shame with my glory. He's saying, Listen, son, I'm not going to wait for you to go get cleaned up, to go take a bath. I'm certainly not going to wait for you to prove yourself. You're not going to earn your way back into this family. I am bringing you home. And then he says, put a ring on his finger and put sandals on his feet. You know who wore rings? Heirs wore rings. You know who wore sandals? Not slaves. Sons and daughters wore sandals. Kill the fatted calf, the father says. Come, let's celebrate for my son who was dead is alive again. My son was lost, but now he has been found. When the older brother hears what's going on, he is furious. And he's particularly upset about the cost because if you notice, the big deal here in this story is the calf. Three different times, right? The father's like, robe, ring, sandals, beef. <laughs> and then the, the, young, the older son hears about the party and he asks the servant, what's going on? And the servant's like, your brother's home and your dad gave him the cow. And then the brother's getting mad at the father later and he's like, you didn't even give me a goat and you gave him the cow? What is the deal with the fatted calf? Well, in Middle Eastern culture, you rarely, if ever, had meat at a meal. It was a delicacy. And if you had meat, it was a very special occasion. But the most elaborate and expensive thing that anybody could possibly do would be to kill the fatted calf. And I love that it says the fatted calf, not a fatted calf. The implication is there was only one. You could only afford one at a time, and then you would raise it to perfection. And you would save it until the perfect occasion, generally an occasion that you would have planned for for years or months. You would have even known 
what you were going to use it for. And it was so expensive that no family would have ever done this for a private party. They would have only done it for something that they were inviting the entire village to. It's likely that they already had a plan for this. The father had a plan for how this would be used in the future. But I love that he abandons his plan. And so filled with joy at the return of his son, he's like, no, 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 no. We are having the biggest celebration ever. Kill the fatted calf. The older brother is livid. And he's angry at the father. And he disrespects the father. He's so angry because he says to him in verse 29, he doesn't say father. He says, look. It can be translated, look you. He says, look you. All of these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. What are you saying is, how dare you use our wealth like that? I should have some say in this too. This is my stuff too. You should have asked me, how dare you use our wealth in this way without talking to me? He publicly humiliates his father by not calling him father. He publicly humiliates his father by not going to the greatest party that his father has ever thrown. Any father would have disowned his son for this kind of disrespect. But what does the father do? He responds by saying, my son. He calls him my son. He's not acting like a son. He's not talking like a son. He wasn't even viewing himself as a son. But the father says, son. It can be translated, my child. My child, he says, I want you here. I want you in the house. He's standing outside. He wouldn't come into the party. I want you inside. I want you at the table. I want you at the biggest feast I have ever thrown. I want you with me. How does the older son respond? What happens in act three? Will there be relational reconciliation? Will they be one happy unified family again? Nobody knows. Jesus ends it right there at a cliffhanger. But the implication is that it doesn't end well for the older brother. So what do we get from this? Well, Jesus is giving us a brand new, unexpected understanding of three things in this story. Of God, a new understanding of sin, and a new understanding of salvation. First, and most briefly, he's giving us a new understanding of God. I know that a lot of people in the world, maybe a lot of people in this room, struggle with the idea of God as father. I'm gonna be honest, man, for a lot of years, I didn't, I didn't refer to God as father. And it was a subconscious thing. I, I also just didn't think about him as father because I didn't have a grid for a safe, accepting relationship with a father because of my relationships with my, my dad and my stepdad. And so I, I thought about Jesus, thought about the spirit, but I, I didn't think about father. And so it can be difficult for some of us. And in the Old Testament, rarely if ever was God referred to as father. But Jesus, every single time except for once, when he refers to the father, when he talks to the father, he calls him father. And some of us might say like, it's hard though, because fathers are like, they're, they're harsh 
they're hard. There's like this like overbearing dominance to them. Fathers mean control and rule. And when I think about God, I, I, want, I want compassion. I want a God who is kind. I want a God who is gracious and gentle. I want a God who is forgiving. I want a God who is uh, looking for reconciliation and relationship. Jesus here gives us a father unlike any father of that time. His emotional abandon, his generosity, his humility, his willingness to receive the agony of rejected love. Jesus brought together attributes about God that no one had ever thought about or even thought possible. He says, God is power and presence. He is Lord and he's love. He is strength and sensitivity. He is conviction and compassion. No one had ever talked about God like this. And I know it can be difficult for some of us to hear this because of our own experience with our earthly fathers, but Jesus is saying, listen, I'm sorry that your father was like that, but my father is not like that. My father is like the father in this story. A father who doesn't wait around to see what the kid will do before he decides how he will respond. No, 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 no. A father who comes to us. Both sons are lost for different reasons, but the father comes to both. Religion is about man trying to get to God, but Christianity is about God coming to man. And when he comes to us, his grace is without measure and his love is without condition. And honestly, without reason. The way that Jesus is describing the father here is not just wonderful, it's crazy. It is absurd. Jesus is totally redefining God. He is giving us a brand new understanding of who God is and what he is like. He is also giving us a new understanding of sin, though. The brilliance of Jesus in this story is that in the first act, he gives us a very traditional picture of sin, right? It's like, younger brother, he's out, he's wasting his life. It's very obvious. He's, he's sleeping with prostitutes. He's wasting away his money. He's obviously disrespectful. He's arrogant. He's just like frivolous. We're like, yeah, the dude's sinning. But when you get to the end of the second act, what you have is two sons, one very good and one very bad. But both are alienated from the father's heart. Both of them love the father's stuff more than they love the father. Both of them use the father to get what they really wanted. The influence, the prestige, the things, the name, the wealth. But one of them did it by being very good and one of them did it by being very bad and they're both lost. One of them is lost in his badness and one of them is lost in his goodness. And in the end, it's the bad son who is saved and the good son, as far as we know, who is lost. The listeners, especially the Pharisees, would have lost their minds hearing this. Hold on. The lawless, rebellious younger brother is the one who is saved and the lawful, righteous 
older brother is the one who is lost. This went against anything anyone would have ever believed. And this is so important because the good son was not lost in spite of his goodness. He was lost because of his goodness. It's not his sin that keeps him from the father. Look what he says. I have worked my whole life for you. I have made myself a servant for you. I have done everything right. I have done nothing but good. It's not his sins keeping him from the father. It's his goodness. It's his righteousness. It's his self-righteousness. The reason we read the first two verses of this uh, chapter is because it's important for us to know who Jesus is talking to when he's telling this story because there's two groups really here. There's the sinners and then there's the religious people. The sinners are the younger brother in the story. They go off and they waste their lives on prodigal living. The religious leaders are the older brother in this story. And in these two brothers, you have a picture of how humanity tries to right themselves. How humanity tries to make the world right and how humanity tries to make themselves right with God. Either through self-discovery, the younger brother, or through self-righteousness, the older brother. Self-discovery says, I'm gonna go out I'm gonna try to find myself. I'm gonna decide what is right and what is wrong for me and then I'm gonna go after it with everything that I have. Self-righteousness says, I'm going to resist myself and my own desires and I'm going to conform to a lifestyle of a greater moral standard. Each way says, this is what needs to be done for the world to be made right. But self-righteousness does not make the world a better place, nor does self-discovery, because the good people want to divide the world. They say the moral people are in and the good people or the bad people are out. And the self-discovery people say the same thing. They say the open-minded, progressive people are in and the closed-minded, judgmental people are out. And Jesus says, you're both wrong. You're both lost. Jesus is redefining our understanding of sin and showing us both of these paths will lead to you being lost. The truth is there are two ways to be your own Lord and Savior. Just like there was two ways for the sons to get the father's stuff. One of the sons did it by being very bad. The other one did it by being very good. See, you can choose to be your own God by being lawless or legalistic by doing whatever you want all the time and living this free, uh, led by my desires kind of life. Or you can do it by trying to follow all the rules all the time, being really good, reading your Bible, going to church, praying, loving people. And if you think that, if I just do the right things, if I pray and I read my Bible and I'm kind to people, then God, God will bless me then Jesus might be your example. He might be your rewarder, but he's not your savior. You are your own savior. All of your obedience, all of your righteousness is an effort to get to what you really want, which is not God. It's something else. And it's not like it's good for you either. It's not like the older brother was happy. Was he happy? Does he look like a happy person to you? He's miserable. He's angry. Why? 
Because when you live thinking that living a good life will give you a good life, you're going to be miserable. Because life rarely, if ever, is good for like years on end, except for like a few years at a time here and there. It's never what you hope it will be. It's never like this perfect life. And so if you live this way, expecting that God's going to reward you by, after you're doing all of these right things, and then your life never really goes exactly the way that you planned it, you become miserable. You become resentful. You become like the older brother. You become angry. That is religion. That is something else. That is not Christianity. Here's the difference between religious people and gospel people. Religious people obey God to get things. Gospel people obey God to get God. Religious people make themselves servants and make God a taskmaster, hoping that they'll, if they, they work hard enough, they'll, they'll get the stuff. It's actually what both brothers did. The older brother saw the father as a master who should have rewarded him because of how good he was. But the younger brother saw the father as a master too, a master who would never reward him because of how bad he was. Both are wrong. God's love, the Father's love, is not based on your very good performance or your very bad performance. His love is not based on anything that has anything to do with you. It is a totally set of different set of rules. His love is based on him. His, base, his love is based on his nature, his character. He chooses to do what he chooses to do because of his nature being good and loving, not because of anything that you have done or anything that you are. And so it's not that the good are in and the bad are out or the bad are in and the good are out. Jesus says, actually, it's like this. The humble are in and the proud are out. Those who know that they're in desperate need of the Father's grace, they are in. And the people who think that they're better and more right than everybody else, those people are out. The gospel of Jesus is not religion or irreligion. It's not morality or immorality. It's not even measured on that continuum. It's on a totally different scale. It is something entirely different. And it all comes down to motivation. Why do we obey God? Of course, the children of the Father want to obey the Father. Of course, the Christians want to obey God. We want to obey God. We should. But why? Well, the answer is found in how Jesus gives us, thirdly, a new understanding of salvation. The truth is neither self-discovery nor self-righteousness go deep enough. Moralism doesn't go deep enough, nor does the free living, do whatever I want, follow my heart, life. Neither of these gets to the bottom of what's actually wrong with the world and wrong with humanity. So what does get to the bottom of it? What does go deep enough? How can the world be saved? If not through moralism and righteousness and not through the free find myself self-discovery, then how? the initiating love of the father. The father goes out to both sons. It actually has nothing to do with us. We cannot ever go deep enough to deal with the problem of the world and the problem of humanity. Only God and God's love can go deep enough. And so he doesn't wait around for us to 
get our stuff together before he responds to us. He comes to us. The father is not waiting on the porch until the son comes home and apologizes. Maybe we would do that. We might wait around and say, I'm gonna see how this goes for a little while and then I'll, I'll decide how I respond. I'm gonna see if there's fruit from the, the child's repentance before I, I choose what I'm gonna do in response. I, that's what we would do. That's not what the father does. Before the son can say or do anything, the father runs to him, throws his arms around him and kisses him. The repentance does not initiate the reckless abandon that we see in the father. It's the other way around. Hear me, it is always the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Never our repentance that initiates the kindness of God. Let me say it again because this is important. It is always the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Never our repentance that initiates the kindness of God. He is not waiting around to see how you will act. And it's noteworthy that the father doesn't just run to the broken humbled, low, destroyed his life, younger brother. He also runs to the self-righteous older brother, which is crazy because remember who the older brother is in the story? It's the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the people that would kill Jesus. And he's sitting there and he's saying, I've come for you too. Salvation is not just for the lowly, it is for the really good, self-righteous, arrogant, judgmental religious people too. I've come for you too. You need me too. The other thing that Jesus shows us about salvation here is that you gotta learn how to repent of something other than sins. The younger brother comes and of course, we expect him to repent. He's got this like list that he's about to go down. He's got a list of all of his sins. It's like, God, I'm sorry for this. I'm sorry for this. I'm sorry for this. I'm sorry for this. Please forgive me, right? Typical, classic repentance. But the older son is lost too. And he doesn't have a list. In fact, his list is a list of all the good stuff that he's done. So how can a person without a list be saved? How do you learn to repent of something other than sins? See, a Christian repents of something you did wrong. Of course, you should. But a Christian also repents of the reasons that you did right. Christians not only recognize when we have done something wrong, but we recognize that it is also sin to do the right things for the wrong reasons. When we do good, for self-justification and a desire to control our own lives or control others or control outcomes by God. When we do things for our own selfish ambition or selfish glory or self-centered gain, this is also sin. And when you begin to see your desire to be your own Lord and Savior, not only in the bad things you do, but also in the reason behind the good things that you do, that's when everything changes because now you're actually getting to the root of what's going on. The difference between a Christian and a Pharisee is motivation. Both obey God. Pharisees obey God to get something. Christians obey God just to get God. Why? Why would we do that? What motivates us to do that? Well, the last thing about salvation that Jesus teaches us in this story 
is that you need to be melted and moved by the love of God. Something that you see needs to melt and move your heart toward God. What do you have to see? You must see what it cost to bring you home. And you might look at this story and be like, what did it cost? Like, I was free, right? Like, the son didn't have to do anything. Who, who did it cost anybody anything? Well, it actually cost somebody a lot. Verse 31 in our passage, the father is talking to the older brother. And he says to him, everything that I have is yours. He wasn't saying this figuratively. He was saying this literally. Literally everything that the father had at that point was the son's. The portion that was the younger son's was already given away. It had already been given away, divided up, given away. Everything left was the older brothers. The robe, the sandals, the ring, the fatted calf, the land, all of it belonged to the older brother. And the younger brother could only be brought back into the family at an enormous cost to the older brother. It's not free to be saved. Somebody has to pay. The older brother has to pay here and he is furious about it. And he's nasty about it too. Why does Jesus put such a nasty older brother in this story? Because he wants the religious people to see what they look like. A true older brother though, would have acted differently. A true older brother would have seen the agony of his father and went out and found the younger brother. A true older brother would have gone to any length and paid any cost to bring his younger brother back home. The younger brother in this story did not have an older brother who was willing to pay the cost, but we do. Jesus Christ is the better older brother. He is the one who gave up his divine privilege, emptied himself, stepped down from his heavenly throne, clothed himself in human flesh, and came and found us in the gutters of our depravity. Jesus Christ is the better older brother who paid the ultimate cost to bring us back home. Jesus Christ is the better older brother who gave his life as the greatest cost so that we might have life. Jesus paid the price that had to be paid for us to be restored back into relationship with our heavenly father. And unlike the older brother in this story, Jesus did it willingly because of his great love with which he loved us. I lived so many years, you guys, not even intentionally, not like ill-hearted, just like trying to do the right thing for God, trying to obey him with the expectation that like God's gonna bless me. God's gonna bless me if I do all the right things. He's gonna bless my life. Things are gonna be good. There's gonna be peace, it's gonna be sweet. There's gonna be life and health. And then, you know, things start happening and you start miscarrying babies and, Friends start dying out of the blue and families get torn apart and your marriage struggles and you hold your child as he takes his last breath in your arms. Like things aren't right. Things don't go right. I lived for so long 
expecting that if I did the right thing, that God would, would bless my life. That he would give me blessing, but he didn't want to give me blessing. He wanted to give me himself. Because he knows that any blessing is never going to satisfy me. I wasn't made for blessings. I wasn't made to find my hope and contentment and joy and satisfaction and blessings of any kind, even really good ones. I can't, I'm not made for that. You're not made for that. We were made to find our satisfaction and contentment and hope and joy in having God. And so he says, I'm gonna give you myself. I'm gonna give you myself. Everything that I have is yours, yes, but I am yours. You, I am your inheritance. All this stuff doesn't matter. I'm your inheritance. And when I, when I realized that, oh, it unlocked everything. It unlocked everything. Not only was I not disappointed and resentful anymore about things not going right in my life, but I was free. I was like, Lord, if I have you, then nothing else matters. It's okay if everything else falls apart. He's a better treasure, friends. He is a better treasure. And if you're here today and you're far from God for one reason or another, or you're living in this kind of weird legalistic thing where it's like, I'm, I'm trying to work so that God will be kind to me. I'm expecting him to like do nice things for me because I'm working. He says, be free from that today. Be free from that today. You're not, you're not living in the house. You're not. You're living outside. You're like the older brother who's like, I've made myself a servant. And the father's like, I didn't ask you to be a servant. I didn't ask you to do that. You can't earn my love. I love you because you're mine. All your goodness will never earn my love and all of your badness can never take it away. You can't buy it. You can't break it. And he stands today with his arms open and he's like, come to me. Come to me. Come to me. Open your heart. Let me come in. My heart's open. Will you come in? Today, he calls us church. And he wants you to know you don't have to prove anything. You don't have to do anything. You can't earn his love. If you don't know Jesus today, you need to know there's nothing you can do to earn his love. He already loves you. He already did everything needed to be done for your salvation to take place. And today, he opens his arms. The question is, how will you respond? In this story, two brothers were lost, but only one of them ended up inside. The difference was how they responded to grace. Will you respond to the grace of your heavenly father today? Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for this story today. Thank you for the way that it um, so clearly depicts humanity and all of our efforts to try to make things better, all of our efforts to try to connect with God. And thank you for how clearly it shows us what you think about all that. 
So we ask now that you would help our, you would help us to respond in a way that is um, in line with your crazy, unexpected, unconditional love.